All right, so today we wrap up a series this morning on the mountains that God used as places of influence in his story. And, and, and I want you to think through that. This is his story that we are part of, and God used these places. All throughout Scripture, when you study it, you're going to see that, that there are different mountains, there are different geographical locations. And six weeks ago, we started on a mountain named Moriah. And God told Abraham to go to this region and to offer his only son as a sacrifice. This demonstrates the great faith in God because Abraham was promised by God that he would be the father of many nations. And Isaac, if you remember, was his only son. And in Genesis 22, I love this. I'm going to see the movie later on today, so I hope it's in there. In Genesis 22, Abraham says to those men, he had some servants who traveled with him. He, he told them, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I are going to go up there, and we're going to worship, and we are going to come back down. Abraham knew that Isaac was not going to be my only son. He knew that there was going to be a lamb that God would provide. He didn't know how. He just trusted in God that God was going to make it happen. And 2,000 years later, on the exact same mountain, my only son, Jesus, was sacrificed. Only God can paint that picture. Only God can set that scene 2,000 years apart. He portrays what's going to take place. And instead of Abraham's one and only son being the sacrifice, he said, not yet. Because it is my one and only son who will be sacrificed on this same mountain. So that's where we began. We walked through the Old Testament and we walked through some of the places that Jesus um, had some significant uh, events take place in his ministry. And normally, on this day, we, we celebrate the aftermath of, of Calvary, right? We, we focus on the celebration of new life. We focus on, on the resurrection. But here's the thing, we, we cannot talk about Mount Calvary without understanding how gruesome a scene this place was. And so today I, I want to, I just kind of want to walk through the events. I want to walk through what Jesus went through from the moment of, of, of that Thursday night in that Passover meal all the way up to his final breath where he surrendered his life. You know, I heard it said one time uh, recently, and I, and, I, and, I, and I I hope I never forget this. They didn't kill Jesus. You cannot kill the Son of God. But Jesus gave up his life. And when you read it for what it is, that's exactly what happened. He is the one who surrendered his life on the cross. Redemption was done. And so we're going to talk about some things, uh, walk through it. So here we go. Thursday night. You showed up here, you know that you got to participate in a Seder meal, uh, which is a form of the Passover meal. It, it, it's, it's our version of understanding of what they did. We walked through it. 
Uh, D. Baker was asking for seconds on some on the bitter herbs, the horseradish, right? Got some for you, D. Take it home with you. And we did that. We did that in this room, out of our out out of this Passover meal, and out of out of uh, out of that comes the Last Supper, which we take every single Sunday here at church. And so Jesus told Peter and John, go into town and make the preparations for the Passover. And so they go in, and on Thursday night, between 6 and 9-ish, if you will, don't hold it me to the exact times, Jesus has a final meal, the Passover. He has it in an upper room. He has it somewhere in the southwest part of Jerusalem. This is where Judas leaves to go and betray. Later on that night, tennis, if you will, Jesus and his disciples leave that house and they go to Gethsemane. They go to the Mount of Olives, which is kind of on the northeast part of Jerusalem. They go there and they go there to pray. And so you've got you to walk away for this to happen, right? And then later on after that, 11 o'clock, between 11 and this 2 o'clock hour, Jesus goes into the garden and he's praying. He prays for three hours. We know that. And he goes back to the disciples twice. And he has to wake them up both times. He's calling them, hey, pray with me. Like You, you don't understand what's about to happen, so, so pray with me. And, and, and during the third hour that he's up there praying, the Bible tells us that sweat is just pouring uh, his sweat is coming out in the form of blood out of his arms, out of his body. The angels, it says, how about this, actually come and they, they give aid to Jesus in that moment. Once Jesus, if you will, gets the composure, he goes back and he wakes them up one more time. And off in the distance, the Kidron Valley, he sees torches coming towards him. Come, my time is at hand. So somewhere between 2 and 5 o'clock, Jesus is arrested, and there's all kinds of melee that goes on there. They bind him, they cuff him, and he's taken to Annas' house. Annas was the high priest, and uh, and now the Caiaphas is the high priest, so he goes there first, then he goes over to Caiaphas. They, 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 they put a blindfold over him, they cover his head, they, they smack him around some, they pull chunks of his beard out. Then about 5 o'clock, once, once daybreak, and there's all kinds of events that have taken place. Jesus is brought out into a, a, a courtyard, if you will, and cock-a-doodle-doo. A rooster crows. And it's the third time that Peter denies Jesus. And they saw each other. They blindfold Jesus again. They beat him as they take him to, to Pilate's praetorium. Pilate's wife, if you remember, says, you need to get out of this situation. Let them handle this, this guy has done nothing wrong, but Pilate just can't help himself. So Pilate, then early that morning, hearing that this man is from Galilee, he sends Jesus away from his house, and he sends him to Herod, who's the king uh, at the time, and, and he sends them 
down there and they Herod and, and Pilate don't live that far away and, and Herod's like, great, finally, you're here. I've heard all about you. Do some miracles. And Jesus gives him nothing. Doesn't even engage in conversation. And so this, of course, upsets Herod and Herod, and Herod now gets mad and Herod's soldiers, they, they clothe Jesus in a royal robe, not the purple robe yet, but a royal robe. It's a, it's a bright white robe and they they mock him and they tease him and they, they beat him up and they send him back to, to Pilate. And then afterwards, this is crazy, Pilate and Herod actually connect over this and it says that they actually become friends. Pilate now has Jesus one more time. And so he's like, as he's engaging in conversations, like, I, I can't find any fault. <clears throat> And like, what, what's, what's the claim against this guy? Well, he claims to be king. Well, is he your king? Pilate's the, the Roman leader of this region. And the Jews, who won't go into Pilate's house for, for fear of being defiled, they have to stand out on the street. And then they, they, they tell Pilate, we only have one king, and his name is Caesar. And so Pilate doesn't know what to do, so he brings out, as his custom, he brings out the worst of all the criminals. A man who was a murderer, a man who was a rapist, a man who was a father of lies, Barabbas. And they're like... Surely Pilate's plan is I'll put the worst of the worst up here against Jesus and I'll say, hey, which one of these do you want me to let go? And they will choose Jesus, but the plan backfires. Free Barabbas. Well, what do you want me to do with him, Pilate says. And they start the chance, crucify. Crucify. See, the Jews were not allowed to kill their own. They had to have Roman permission. And so they sat there, and they are the ones who stood on Pilate's doorstep, and they yelled, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so this time Pilate thinks, well, I'll just have him flogged, right? I'll just beat him really bad, and maybe that'll appease their appetite. And, and so he takes it to the whipping post, which is this, this post not much smaller than this table, and, and Jesus would have been stretched over his back, taunt over this, this post. And it was not this Indiana Jones style whip. It was this whip that, that the, the Romans perfected. It had, it's called a cat of nine tails. I'm sure you've heard of it. it. It was a long whip, but then at the very end, it had these nine tails that came off of it. And, and they would have bone or rock or glass or whatever they could find. And, and, and the law was that 39 times was the maximum. And, and so they would position themselves and, and, they, and they would whip somebody and, and the cat of nine tails would come around and it would grab them right here. And then they would yank back and the flesh would just be pulled off. And then they would do it from the other side. And then they would just rotate back and forth, back and forth. They did this 39 times times. How about now? Crucify him. This is not enough. We want him dead. 
And so the soldiers continued to mock Jesus. They put a purple robe on him. He made a, a crown out of thorns. And they didn't just lay it on his head. They drive it into his head. And then they march him out of town. He has to carry his own cross. Now, most likely it was not the full cross that you see. Most likely it was just the cross beam. Still extremely heavy. This man was forced to carry it, and every time he stumbled, every time he fell, he'd get kicked. He'd get whipped more. He got to the point where he couldn't carry it, and so they grabbed a guy out of the crowd by the name of Simon. Simon. And he carried the cross the rest of the way. At about nine o'clock in the morning, they lay that cross beam down. And they lay Jesus on the cross. And the Bible tells us that they offer him some wine and some gall. Gall, if you will, is a drug. It's not really designed to kill the pain. It's, it's really designed to cause them to hallucinate, to speak out of their mind, to act like a babbling fool, if you will. And they tried to give it to Jesus and he rejected this wine. And then they drove the spikes through the hands and the feet. And back then, scientists tell us that they considered the hand anything from the elbow down. And so somewhere in here, they would drive a spike through his arm and stretch him out and stretch him out. And then through the tops of his feet. There's not a good place for any of this. And so they then... Stand this cross up. And it drops down into a hole. The force of his weight pulling down, ripping nerves. The Bible bookstores do an injustice to what we see. We have the paintings of Jesus on a cross with a couple of thieves to his left and to his right, on a hill far away, with a cross up in the air. He was probably a foot off the ground. He was at a major intersection. You see, Rome didn't have, you know, a mighty artillery of, of nuclear weapons to protect their borders and to be a threat to everybody else. And so you know what they did? They used intimidation. And this was a tactic that they used throughout the Roman Empire to deter uprisings. And so they would put these prisoners on crosses at major crossroads so that when you're coming into town, you see the criminals. They also do it so that you could mock and laugh and spit upon them because after all they're criminals and so jesus is there probably a foot off the ground he's at actually a major intersection which 
today where they think this particular uh, uh, crucifixion took place, there's actually a bus station on the same piece of ground right now. That's how busy of a place that, that historians think this is, a major crossroad up on Golgotha. And on the cross, Jesus says seven things. And here's the thing. The science behind crucifixions are actually very fascinating. What the Romans learned about torture was, was incredible. To say anything hanging on a cross is an excruciating feat. And to know furthermore that he was nailed to these wooden beams and that in order to exhale what you have to do in order to speak he would have to push up on these nails through his arms and every time you pushed up the nerve endings would cause an excruciating pain So think about it. The very first thing he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I, I, I mean, like, like think about that moment, knowing that, that you're there, you've already endured an incredible amount of, of pain, you've been made fun of, and, and, and to utter anything, it's going to be painful. And he says the very first thing, Father, forgive them, because they just don't understand. So it makes that all the more significant. Luke 23 records a, a short conversation between Jesus and the thieves on the cross next to him. It's actually one, one conversation. He, he says this in verse 34. And, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Church, I don't want anybody walking out of here today not understanding this passage and what is taking place. 
All right, Jesus is offering forgiveness to the very people who have falsely prosecuted him. They have beat him, they have tortured him, they have humiliated him, and now they're trying to kill him. We don't act with that kind of kindness and grace when people get our orders wrong at the restaurant or the rude customer comes in and says something inappropriate. We don't treat people with that kind of grace for far less falsely prosecuted him, beat him, tortured him, humiliated him, and now they're trying to kill him. Father, forgive them. And I want you to know right now, there is nothing in your life that you cannot be forgiven from. Nothing. And Jesus has already extended his grace to you and I. All we have to do is ask for it. First John tells us that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. It's not enough that we just ask him into our heart. Church, there, there's got to be some confession. There's got to be some realization of, man, this is, this is what I have done wrong. And not just, oh God, I'm a wretched sinner, please forgive me. But a listing of the sins. And it doesn't have to be to me, it can be him. That's who it needs to be to, to him. And he is faithful and just to forgive. And then church cleanse us from all wickedness. Then one of the thieves chimes in in the mocking. He starts making fun of Jesus. And then the second thief has a, has a little sense, has a little wherewithal of what's going on. And if you realize and you recognize this person right here, this thief is the only person who publicly defends Jesus in this entire time period. He's the only one. Everyone else is either scattered, they've denied Jesus, or they've condemned him. And this thief has a very simple statement and request. This man has done nothing wrong. That's what he says. This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All right, this is a serious moment, but every single one of you right now is distracted. I don't know what it is. I don't know. It's not. No one in here. Everybody, everybody, eyes up. Everybody, eyes up. Everybody, okay. No one's struggling to breathe right now. Okay. We're good. All right. Back here. I heard it too. Like, I thought somebody was stuck in the air conditioning then. Okay, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It's like, what is going on? All right. Michael, good job, Michael. We just tried to meet Michael. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he just, he, he throws it out there. Like, I mean, I may as well remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't even know what that looked like. He, he, all he knew is, is that Jesus was falsely accused. He didn't have a, a, a grand knowledge of it. 
And Jesus assures him that he will be in paradise. And, and here's the thing, church. This thief, he can't bring nothing to the table. Can he? He, he? he can't bring anything to the table of Jesus' ministry. He can't tithe. He can't serve others. He's nailed to a cross. He's about to die. He can't go to church. He can't go tell other people about Jesus. This guy has absolutely nothing to offer Jesus. You ever feel that way? You ever feel that, man, there's absolutely no way God can use me? Man, I, my, I've messed my life up so much. I got there's no way. We, we got a guy that's been coming to church. I want you to know, man, I, I, I've, I've been meeting with this guy. I was hoping he's going to be here today. Because he needed to hear this. He feels like, man, there's absolutely no way with my past and the things that I've done that God can use me. There's no reason God would want me. And Jesus looks at this thief. There's absolutely nothing to give. He says, today, you will be with me in paradise. The church was a thief. Jesus does not offer salvation because of the potential that we have. A lot of talented people in this room, you're all talented. Jesus doesn't offer salvation to you because of how great and wonderfully made you are and the, and the fact that you've got some things you can bring to the table. He doesn't offer salvation to you because you're going to give in a love offering or, 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 or bring the best, you know, hash brown casserole today or, or, or whatever. Or the, man, there was some stuff at the end of the table, the, the little squares, and they had like a little sweet thing on the top. And some, I don't know who brought that, but they got a special place in heaven um, because those were legit. That person, whoever it is, was he Miss Connie? I think so. Yeah, see, God's not giving Miss Connie, she, God's not giving salvation because she makes a wonderful dessert, heavenly dessert, from, straight from heaven, I think. It's not how God works. He offers salvation to all people because of the love that he has for you and I. And the one thing that separates the one thief from the other thief was that he chose team Jesus. He just asked, and Jesus, this guy's done nothing wrong. And my buddy Virgil Grant says this, the father knew he was going to have to treat his only son like a criminal in order for him to treat the criminal like his son. He loves us so much that he was willing treat Jesus like a villain so that you and I could become sons and daughters of the King. Then Jesus, a little later on, he raises up on his nail-pierced hands and feet and he cries out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus is doing something very interesting with this question. There are four levels of biblical exegesis, and one of the methods of 
of rabbinical teaching from one rabbi to, to an audience. Uh, and and to have, for them to understand Scripture was a process called, called Rimza. Say, say Rimza. Okay, I'm just making sure you're still with me here. All right, so in their teaching, they would use part of a scripture passage in a discussion, assuming that their audience's knowledge of the Bible would allow them to deduce for themselves the fuller meaning of the teaching. Does that make sense? And so they, they, would, they would say something, knowing that the audience had some knowledge and, and they would be able to then deduce for themselves the greater meaning of the teaching. So apparently Jesus, who possessed this brilliant understanding of Scripture and strong teaching skills, he used this method often. It's found throughout. We, we gave a couple of examples ago, or a couple weeks ago, with, with Jesus. And so several times Jesus would do this throughout the Gospels. So here is what a Rimza is. Okay, it's a version, if you will, of name that tune. Right, it's a little audience participation. Sweet Caroline. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's all I do. Right, right. Lean on me. Yeah. Now be. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing here. Okay? He, he, he's taking those in the audience who, who know of what we call the Old Testament back to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's all he has to say. Because the psalm written by David a thousand years earlier is a walk through what Jesus would endure on the cross. And just like you could finish the song lyrics, the Jewish people in the audience would be familiar with the rest of the song. Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jesus is on the cross suffering. And if you study it on your own, we're not going to do it here because it, it would take hours to do. David goes on within the flow of this poem and he writes in extreme detail what Jesus will endure a thousand years later. He says things like verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. You know what happens when you hang like this? You dislocate your shoulders. My heart is like wax it is melted within my breast my strength is dried up like a potsherd my tongue sticks to my jaws you know they offered Jesus wine a second time 
It's real interesting. I, I, I got to thinking, why? Why is there a full jar of wine? Why is there a sponge? What, like, what's the, what's the significance of this? And, and truth be told, I, I studied way too much into this than I should have. But, but one of the one of the historical theories of Roman executions was that these were carried out by infantrymen. And infantrymen would have a field pack. And within that field pack, they would have a, a couple of necessary tools for survival. One would be a sponge, and one would be a, a small canteen-like jar that is used to disinfect the sponge. See, the sponge was used for cleaning. For cleaning themselves. The sour wine and the vinegar would be used to disinfect. So essentially, when Jesus says, I am thirsty, when, when, when he says that, that my tongue sticks to my jaws, and they offer him sponge, sour wine, I'm a God who just cleans himself. For dogs encompass me, verse 16, a company of evildoers circled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones and stare. And they stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Thousand years before that any of this happened, they did this right in the sentence. The last two verses. Verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. David is saying, "Is our children will also serve him, and our children's children will serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. They will hear about his righteous acts. It, it, it will be told to those not yet born. That's you and I. We're here today because generations told generations to come." And generations told other generations about it. And here we are today. We are the not yet born. And there's a generation of people out there right now who've yet to buy into the love and the grace that Jesus offers on the cross. the last line, they will hear about everything he has done. Church, are you going to be the ones to tell them about everything he has done? Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. God, you, we, we cannot grasp the kindness that you have for us. Father, I know that what happened on the cross was gruesome. 
And I can't imagine what you as a father experienced in that as well. But we know this, whatever your feelings are, whatever your feelings were, your love for us is greater. And so, Father, I pray right now. I pray right now for this audience. I pray for the ones who hear my voice when they watch this later on. God, that if there's not decisions to make you not just Savior, but Lord, God, I pray that you put a convicting spirit within us. Thursday was scary for Jesus. Friday was torturous for Jesus. But in a borrowed tomb, he walked out victorious. And because of that, God, because of that, you're going to come back and get us. And I pray, Father, Pray for those who have not yet heard of everything that he has done. Use me to be the one. We love you, God. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.